All right, you guys, last night, it's crazy. Uh, it's been so fun to be with y'all all week long. Um, let me just sort of say, by way of introduction tonight, just a huge thanks. Uh, it's been a real treat for me, my wife, our three girls to be here. We've had a blast. And uh, there is no doubt that the reason that we have is because of you guys. Y'all have been a joy to be around, and it's just a, a real treat to be able to open God's Word to you guys every night. So I'm the lucky one. Thank you so much for uh, enduring and listening. Uh, if you have had to sit underneath my preaching for uh, this long, you really do know what it's like to long for the new heavens. And the new earth. So uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to a very famous passage, uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you've got a phone or you've got a Bible, I'd like you to turn there. We're going to read verses 18 to 25. And... Uh, just by way of recap, you know where we have been. We began on Monday night talking about a new perspective that was going to be required to understand what the Bible means when it talks about God making all things new. And then we saw on the subsequent nights, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night, the what that God was making new. We said He was making us new. He was also making a world for us to live with Him forever brand new as well. And then last night we looked at the big, so what? If this is true, then what? How now do we live? And we talked about our new purpose that had been given in light of this great hope that we have. Well, tonight we're going to end in what might seem like a weird place to end, but I think it's absolutely proper that we do so. Tonight we're going to look, really, at an, ex uh, an expansion of what we touched on on Monday night. You may have heard me give you a little teaser on Monday night say we're going to come back to it. And tonight we're going to do that. And I'm titling this sermon, A New Posture. By posture, I mean a way of sort of being in the world. A way of uh, uh, positioning oneself. And it's more a posture of the heart. And you're going to hear it in this text tonight. And I hope that it will provide you with profound encouragement for your days, weeks, months, and even years ahead until you meet the Lord or until He comes back. This is my hope for us tonight. So let's read this together. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. This is God's Word. It is given to us in love, and we would do well to turn our hearts and our ears to it. Let's read together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with either longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain, pardon me, I lost my spot, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as well as we wait eager, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he, has, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Let's ask God together to ask Him to help us tonight. Our Father, we ask 
one more time this week that you would send your spirit now to open up our eyes and our ears to meet us. And Lord, would you give us special attention now to your word that we might learn what it looks like to wait for you. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. A few weeks, or a few months ago, rather, a dear friend of mine, um, we, we, were, we were very, very excited because we had purchased tickets to drive from Fort Worth over to Dallas to catch a, to catch a new concert. Now, by the time that we had purchased our tickets, the time that we were actually at the venue listening to the band was somewhere around three or four months. So we had to wait. But in that time, do you know what I did? Like, this is what Ryan was doing. Uh, maybe you've done something like this if you were waiting to go to a concert or something of the like. I was listening to every song that I could find of the artist on Spotify, playing it on repeat. I mean, I've still got the playlist on my phone. I was looking at live recordings on YouTube. You know, where do they play live? How do they sound live? What's the show like? I want to know what it was like. And I was reading the, the bio of the band, where they were from, or do they have brothers and sisters? I mean, I was just, I wanted to know more about them. In fact, I became the biggest evangelist for the band. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Oh my gosh, you got to listen to them. They are so great. So anybody with an earshot heard me talking about them. And when we had people over, Alexa was playing this band as well, okay? What was fun was when I saw my buddy with whom I was going to the show, we would talk about it. And on our way over to the concert, now some of y'all are against this, but I'm totally for it. We did our favorite tracks that we wanted to listen to, you know, just to kind of get us amped up for the show. All what? In anticipation for the real thing. And the thing is, we were waiting. All of that activity. And we were waiting. But it wasn't passive, was it? We were looking forward to something that had yet not yet come. Now, I wanted to start by that by showing you this is exactly what Paul is talking about in this text. You see, in this text tonight, Paul echoes what we touched on on Monday night. And he writes about what it is for us to wait. That word wait shows up three times in this text. And that's sort of an indicator that we need to pay attention, that we need to open our eyes and see a little bit. Because, you see, as God is in process of renewing all things, as we, as we are here in the here and now, we do wait. And he writes not only about our experience as sons and daughters, but if you notice, he talks as well, perhaps strangely, that the creation itself is waiting. And as we and all of creation wait with this eager longing, we look forward to that day. Now, before we get started, you need to understand a little bit about what the Bible means, especially Paul, when he talks about waiting. A lot of us might have an idea in our head that needs to... Uh, you know, maybe we need to get rid of it so that we can understand a little bit about what Paul is talking about. The Bible speaks a ton about waiting. Did you know that? And there are commands left and right throughout the scriptures that talk about waiting. And I just have a question for you. How do you get good at waiting? You wait. You wait. And you know what that means? Synonymous with being a Christian is to learn how to wait. You can't be a Christian without it. You just simply can't. We sang about it tonight, didn't we? Listen to how the psalmists talk about it. We sang about it in Psalm 62, 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. Or again, earlier in the psalm, Psalm 27, 4. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 
Or you remember Paul, when he's writing to, the, uh, to Titus, he talks about Jesus coming back and he uses this language, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all over the Bible. And Paul is touching on it here. And the point that he wants to see is that while we think about waiting, we, we tend to think about waiting as like maybe going to the doctor's office, right? You know, you've got to wait till it's your turn to go in. Or, you know, we sort of sit passively and wait for our turn. We might check our phone, scrolling aimlessly. Or we might read a book. Or maybe it's like previews in a movie, right? You're there, seeing what's coming, but you're having to what? Wait for the real thing that you paid for your, your money for. The reason I'm here is to see the movie. The other stuff is just filler until we get there. And friends, here's the thing. Paul could be saying... Paul is saying the absolute opposite when he's talking about waiting. It is waiting with activity. It is waiting, we long for something, and yet we get on with life. So, what am I trying to hope to show you guys tonight? I want you to see, in a very, very real sense, this is what it looks like to wait. It doesn't have to be a concert, it can be a party at your house, a championship game in a few weeks, a prom, or the beginning of college. You are certainly waiting on it, but you are in no way sitting back, twiddling your thumbs. There is activity and participation and preparation as well. Now, when you see that, when you see that, when you get to understand that, and that's what the Bible means when it's talking about waiting, yes, there is a delay in the thing or the person waited for, but there is an activity, a getting on with life, a preparation for the great coming of our blessed hope. So tonight, I would simply like to show you this. That the new posture that is going to be required, the new posture that's going to be required for all of us is we're going to have to learn how to wait. And the text gives us two amazing helps. Two amazing helps that it's there. First of all, I want you to see this. An internal help. And then secondly, an eternal hope. We're there in the text, and I'd like to explore them with you. Let me show you first what I mean by an internal help. Some have called Romans 8 the high watermark for the book of Romans. Its themes and promises are absolutely majestic and soaring. And not the least of these reasons is for the emphasis that Paul is making on the person and the work of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned over 20 times alone in this chapter, though only once in hours for sure. But in verse 23, we are told this, did you catch it there? Turn your eyes. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now I just want to hone in. There's a lot that can be said here, but I just want to hone in on this idea of the internal help of the Holy Spirit that we have. You see, Paul is saying, when he uses this language of a first fruit, He's saying this is the initial down payment that we receive as God's gift to us that, that is a mark of the certainty that we have coming. You see, the, that this is the inbreaking of that spiritual life that we now have that we will know in full as we, have, as we have talked about all week long. This is the first installment, as it were. But, but who is this spirit and why does Paul mention him here as he talks about our future hope? The first thing you need to know is the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is not an it, it's not a force, it's not a Jedi trick, okay? And in fact, the Bible tells us we speak of Him as a Him. It's, he's a, he is a person. 
The Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. He is God. And it is the Spirit who takes up residence within us to empower us, not only for the Christian life, but to wait, to help us wait until Jesus returns. You see, how, how in the world will you live like we talked about last night? What's the fuel source that you have? Where are you going to get the power to be able to, to live as, to live among, and to live for? Where do you get that? Do you not know it is the residing spirit of the living God who indwells you, that enables you to walk faithfully with Jesus? That is what, we, that's what we're told about. Listen to this. Listen to what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he has told his disciples, believe it or not, I'm just now saying it, to wait for him there in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have been given as well, brothers and sisters, for the purpose of bearing witness about our King, that Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to wait with patience as we go on the living the Christian life. And yet, because we have the Spirit, this means something very, very practical and relevant to us. What is it? Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Christian never does life alone again. You may be many things as a Christian, but you're not alone. You're not. Because God's very Spirit resides within you. That is what the promise of the new birth gives us. And the reality is, at this very moment, if, if you understood what I was saying, we would all just fall down the floor and give praise to God. God, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who comes down and singes Mount Sinai's tip, that God's Spirit lives in you. The very same God, the very same Spirit that raises Jesus from the dead dwells in every single one of you if you are united to Christ. Do you know what sort of power the presence of the one who lives within you? Paul is saying that Spirit helps us. It helps us in our sufferings, he says in verse 18. And that can come, you see, from any sort of treatment that just being a Christian itself or just living life under the sun. You see, asking questions like, why didn't I make the basketball team? Why am I going through these sorrows? Why does it seem like mom and dad aren't getting along right now? You see, circumstances are strong persuaders. Strong persuaders in the contest of what is real and true. Is God there? Is He in this with me? How, how could He be? first fruits of the Spirit remind us that our sorrows are not the last word on God's heart for us. Let me repeat that. The first fruits of the Spirit remind us that our sorrows and that our sufferings are not the last word on God's heart for us. The Spirit does this because one of the jobs, we did not read it, of the Holy Spirit in verse 21 it is His job to remind us that we are God's children. Jeremy's talked about that with you this week. Not in our, not in our text, but it is, it is to remind us. His job is to remind us that the Father calls us His children. 
Listen to what the writer Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. That is beautiful. The Spirit reminds us at all times, in every circumstance, when we feel like we're crushing life or when life is crushing us of who we really are because of whose we really are. God is our Father. We are His children. And by the ever-present help of the Spirit, we are reminded of such daily. But the internal help of the the Spirit, we we have more than simply God's presence with us we have His power within us as well. You see, His presence with power. And that is power to bear witness about our King in love and mercy until He returns. It is power to carry out good deeds. It is power to walk a life of repentance. And all that we are called forth to live is empowered by the very Spirit. In John's Gospel, Jesus Himself refers refers to the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's a, it's a funky word. It's called the parakletos. A parakletos is what it's now, That word has given Bible translators, uh, it's tied them up in knots. Because they're never quite sure what to, how to translate it because it's so rich. It's so dense of a meaning. It means things like a, a, a helper or an advocate. Or if you read the ESV, it would say a comforter. I like that as well, but When you understand the comforter, you can't think of it like this. You can't think of it like a warm, snuggly blanket. Does that make sense? You know what I'm talking about, that comforter, right? That thick blanket that goes on top of your bed, that's not what what Jesus is mean. He means that the old language of the comforter, for those of you who took Latin, it's literally cum forte, with strength. The Spirit is the one who gives us strength. He testifies within us to remind us of who we are. Listen to this illustration, see if it helps you a little bit. Think about the Holy Spirit in this way, like a basketball coach, okay? So let's imagine this. The clock is winding down with only seconds left, and your team is down by one point. It's your senior year in high school, the championship game, and the last one that you'll ever play because you're not going to play in college. You see an opening, crossover dribble, Break your defender's ankle. Not literally, of course. That's insider speak. You pull up the shot. The buzzer sounds just before what, though? The ball swirls around the rim and then outside of the net and touches the floor. Game over. But you were fouled. So you go to the line to take two shots. And your coach calls a timeout. Now listen to this. Listen to this. Your your coach pulls you over the side. He looks you dead in the eye. He gets you in the face. And he says this. Listen to me. I have no doubt in my mind that you can hit these shots. You've played your whole life for this moment. You've been successful from the line all year. Now go out there and do what you were made to do. Crush them both. And then, because your coach is also your father... He looks you in the eye and he says this. I want you to know that it's been my privilege to coach you all of these years. Even more so that I can be your dad. If you miss these, it really doesn't matter. We're going to go out and have pizza anyways afterwards. Son, I love you. You're a heck of a basketball player. 
You think that would put strength in you? You might think that might stiffen your spine a little bit out and go out there and nail those shots. Dear friends, what I want you to see is this. The Holy Spirit is far more intimate with you than the best of earthly fathers could ever be. And it's His job to remind you of who you are in Christ and say you were made for this purpose, to bear witness to our coming King. Go read Ezekiel 36 sometime. That Old Testament passage where we're told about the outpouring of the Spirit in the days of the Messiah. And it was always an outpouring of the Spirit on God's people that the nations might know who the Messiah was. It was God's presence for power in ministry. And the Holy Spirit's job description has never changed. He has come to make much of Jesus and dear friends. That is the internal help that you have as you wait for our coming King. Don't you ever forget it. Don't you ever forget that you have the Holy Spirit in you. And therefore you have God Himself residing in you. That is power for faithful walking with Jesus all the days of your life. But that's not all the text shows us. It shows us, secondly, not only the internal help that we have, but the eternal hope that we have as well, too. Look at verses 18 to 22, and I'm going to look as well at verses 24 and 25. Paul is brutally honest, however, about what living as adopted sons and daughters looks like. Is it glorious? Yes. But that does not mean that there is not suffering in the world. In fact, you'll notice what Paul says when he says this, when he means, when he says that we will be heirs with Christ in verse 17, that is, if we suffer with Him. And yet, though we suffer, Paul notes that there is a horizon that every Christian has their eyes on. Like the runner who gruelingly slogs to the finish line, so too the Christian is able to see the joy beyond the sorrow. And what does Paul call that finish line? He calls it our hope. Our hope. And when we hear that word hope, I, I guarantee you, nine out of ten of us think hope is something like an internal wish. It's this idea of uncertainty. You know, it's, it's this idea, it's this feeling sort of that we have that something may or may not happen. You know, but that's not the way that Paul uses the word hope. He is talking about a confidence rooted and a future certainty. Let me say that again. Hope is a confidence rooted in a future certainty. And when the Bible talks about hope, it talks about that the substance of something. It's, it's an objective reality out there. And when the Bible does talk about a subjective experience, it's always connected to that objective reality outside of us. So we have an internal sense of hope because we have an objective hope that our eyes are set upon. Now most of us think of the word hope and we think about it like this. I hope I get an A on my biology test. Or I hope he calls me after this week. We really connected. That's the idea of the way we think about it. These ideas express the exact opposite of the Christian hope. For they convey a sense of uncertainty. So far so good. Y'all with me? You tracking? But here's the deal. The horizon or the finish line to which all Christians are running is what Paul calls our hope. It is our vision of how life will be. And it concerns the details of all that we have spoken about the past few days. And because 
that which is already realized is not hope. Hope is something that we don't see with our eyes, the eyes of our face, but we do see it with the eyes of our hearts. I told you you were going to need your imaginations. And Paul is saying that being led by the Spirit is to keep our hearts zoomed in on our hope of that future certainty of life with Him. If you come to our house at dinner time, you'll often uh, see us in that crazy witching hour. Uh, you might see yours truly singing a few bars from The Greatest Showman. Y'all know what I'm talking about? From now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the light. And our kids love it. We, just, we love the soundtrack of that album, okay? But one of my favorite lines from that movie is this. Men suffer from imagining too little and too much. Men suffer by imagining too little than too much. And I'm urging you tonight to take Romans 8 seriously and to see this. Without our hearts grasp of our real hope, life will be very weak indeed. Let's keep going because it really does get amazing. Some of my favorite scripture in all of Romans is right here. And all we've done so far is to define that hope, but we're still left with the question, what is the substance of it? Well, we've touched on it ever so briefly, but look with me at verse 21. Did you catch it? He said this, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. Pause. We talked about that two nights ago. The creation itself will be liberated. And the way this is saying this, Paul is saying this, that creation itself is longing for you and me to have our resurrected bodies back together. And that's the first hope, the idea of our bodies, restored bodies, back with our restored souls, all together, right here in Romans 8. We've already talked about, will you be able to dump? I don't know. But the idea is, is this, that you and me, as we've spoken about all week, our bodies and our souls purified and perfected, back together again. That is part of our hope. And then also the creation itself will be renewed. The creation longs for this. The way Paul talks about it, you saw it there, it says this, that the creation longs for, it, it, it yearns for. Another way of translating that is to, is to groan for something. It also says this, that the creation groans as if a mother in childbirth is groaning. Some of you may have had the privilege of watching a younger sibling be born. As a father, I have seen three of my children born. And that is a deep, deep groan. Mothers, you know exactly what we're talking about. The idea is that all of creation groans in one cosmic groan together, longing for you and for me to finally see our Lord Jesus. Wow, did you know that? That is the substance of our great hope. I've tried to convince you this week to please abandon the idea that heaven is off somewhere as and will be angel babies playing harps forever. How dull. How dull. You know? Remember, God doesn't make junk and He doesn't junk what He's made. Christian salvation is a physical, this-worldly, though renewed salvation. We don't become more spiritual in Christianity by becoming less physical. So we invest ourselves in caring for the physical things that God has made from people to their needs for food, shelter, and justice, and so on, but also for the idea of stewarding this world, the idea of sharing our faith with one another. All of these things are part and parcel 
about what it means to be a Christian this side of heaven. And the last thing I want to drive home to you about our eternal hope, and this might be the, this might be the payoff pitch for all week long, y'all. I'm, I'm dead serious. This might be the payoff pitch. Everything else has just been set up. Here it is. Nothing will have a bigger impact on your life in the present than your vision of the future. You just, it, nothing else will. All of us intrinsically, Christian or non-Christian, we, in, we are inherently, big $10 word, big $10 word coming up, teleological people. Now what in the world does that mean? We always live with some vision of the end in life. Christian or non-Christian. Every single human being has a vision of the good life. And they're always orienting life unto that end in the present. You see, if you want to be a good screenwriter one day, for an illustration, if you want to be a good screenwriter, you will take classes, you'll, you'll do your best to get into the best film school that you can. And then when you're there, you're in the moment as a college student, you'll work hard in the moment, and those hard courses, you'll, you'll have a context for that. Because you know where the story is ending. And then when you get out of college, you'll hitch your wagon, as it were, to somebody who knows what they're doing, and you might apprentice to learn how to write scripts well. But every day will be oriented. Every day will be focused around that great end that you have. And what I'm telling you right now is, you have a hope. What is it? What's the great end? What's the great end of your story? All I have to do is look at your life to figure it out. And Paul is saying that our hope, our hope is what we read here, what we've been talked about all, all week long. And it will affect your life in the present unlike anything else. Paul is saying to actually live as a Christian means we wait, but not twiddling our thumbs. Heavens, no. Rather, we're always grasping the resurrection, the renewal of all things, our future hope, unending presence with God Himself. We are to grasp that as we wait, and I love this image, we pull the future into the present. Y'all see what I mean by that? We pull the future into the present, and we do life in the present on the basis of our great hope. That's what it means to live, live as a Christian. That's what it means to wait as Christians. So what is your hope? That's why we did all things new. So that you would know. So you weren't living dull, uninteresting lives. So that you were empowered with a great end to go, I got the best story. This is my life. That's what you get to live in light of now. God is making a world where there's no more injustice, so we commit ourselves to fighting it now. God is making a place where our bodies will be healed, so we think about professions like physical therapy and nursing and medicine and dentistry. God is making a place where we will enjoy Him forever, so we share the good news about this life with our friends, and we worship Him this side of the grave. God cares about culture and business and education and law and the arts, so we commit ourselves to doing those things as well. Do you see it? Our task to follow Jesus is to walk alongside Him in His mission to renew all things. That is our task and calling in the present. In summary, friends, Paul is saying that if we are going to live well in this world, if we are going to wait well, we must realize what we've been given. We must realize what we've been given and use what we have been given as well 
drawing on the resources of our internal help and our eternal hope. These are profound gifts given to us that enable us to wait well until our King comes. That's what is given to us. Well, let me land the plane not only on the night, but also on our week together. How can we know? How can we know with certainty that this is our great future and that we can live today faithfully in light of it? Well, you see, there was one in the later part of Romans 8 that will tell us who was given for us that we might have all things. This, of course, is our great Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And on the cross, something amazing happened to Him. The Father that He had known Ever, forever, the presence from all eternity, the one to whom he had always prayed, that one was silent. That one was silent. He, Jesus, was abandoned from the cross. And he experienced utter hopelessness as he was breathing his last. Why? So that you, so that me, would never ever have to. He died our death. And live our life, the life that we ought to have lived, so that we now receive the glorious treatment, dear friends, that Jesus deserves. And what is that? God's smile. God's delight. You know this, right? The gospel tells you God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. He's actually crazy about you. And I would give anything for you to believe that. The cross tells you that he is wild about you as his child. This is the great hope of the gospel. How do we know it? Because Romans 8 tells us that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, not also along with him, graciously give us all things? There it is, all things. And as we wait for God to complete His restoring work in all of creation, summing up all things in Christ, He is with us by His Spirit. Hallelujah. But don't blink, dear friends. Do not blink. The day is coming soon when all will be restored and made perfect. I close our time together back at C.S. Lewis's Narnia Tales. This is the last paragraph of the entire series. And it captures so well what we are longing and waiting on. If you've ever read those books, you know the twists, you know the turns, you know the stories of the Pevensey children. You know of Eustace, who we spoke about. You know of the princes and the kings and all of Narnia's creatures and how the great Aslan finally won the last battle. And the book closes like this. And as he, Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write about them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last... They were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before.
That's our story, friends. Listen to what Jesus says. Surely, I'm coming soon. Amen. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Help us to wait. Remind us of who we have, that you're with us. Remind us of the horizon that all of our eyes are laid on. Help us to long. Help us to pray that you would hasten the day. For we would see you once and forever, face to face, in your presence forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.